Amen. I, I think it's a taste of um, I think it's a taste of glory singing together as saints. You think? I, I think so. It's it's a taste of 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 when uh, we will be in in glory. Now I have a confession to make is I forgot about our Thanksgiving tradition that I read Psalm 107 to you every Thanksgiving. And maybe that's because I didn't have my wife to remind me. I'm not sure. I take all the blame. So I'm not going to do that right now. But if you don't know what Psalm 107 is, and even if you do, I encourage you as families before this weekend is over, well, there's not much left, before the next week is over, sit down as a family and read Psalm 107. And you'll see why it is the preeminent Thanksgiving psalm. And so turn with me here this morning again to First Peter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3. And we'll be in Matthew 5 uh, a little bit down the road. So... We're going to be camping out on uh, perhaps verses 13 and 14 this morning in 1 Peter chapter 3, and I will get there here in a sec. So in chapter 3, in verses 13 through 17, Peter's emphasis is on how we interact with unbelievers, especially with those who are hostile toward us because we are Christians. And we'll focus here on 13 and 14, as I've already said, but let's read verses 13 through 17 as we begin this morning. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you, yet with meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So here's a wonderful paragraph for us to learn from as to how to be like the Lord Jesus Christ. The hostile conditions that Peter describes were fairly prevalent and expected during the early centuries of the church. And Jesus had taught his disciples to expect persecution, to expect hostility. He warned them, taught them. And we've seen that as followers of Christ, we are called to respond to such hostilities in the most extraordinary of ways. We are called, in verse 9, not returning evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. 
just totally extraordinary. <laughs> but that's what we're called to because we're called to become like Jesus Christ, the perfect man, the perfect image of God. And that's exactly what God does. God constantly showers good upon those who treat him with evil. He constantly does that. And we are now called in Christ to image God. And what a privilege that is. You know, there's no greater thing than being a Christian. <laughs> there's no greater privilege. There's no greater honor that God should call you and make you one of his servants. Is, is there any greater privilege or honor? There, there just isn't. There just isn't. To be named by the name of his son? To be called by his name? There, there isn't anything greater. If we're thinking clearly, if we're seeing things clearly, God help us. We're called to these, these most extraordinary things. And as I've always said, we must never forget that the cross and our salvation is one massive display of the Lord returning good to us in the place of our evil towards Him. He has done and is doing for us what He is calling us to do in relation to others. <laughs> That's it. Now in verses 13 through 16, Peter gives us encouragement and exhortations relating to suffering unjustly. And the mistreatment in view is occasioned by our resolve to obey Christ. Our resolve to obey Christ is what at times leads us into conflict with the world. We try to avoid it. We try to be peacemakers. We try to return good for evil. We bless when we're cursed. We do all those things to try to keep the peace. But there are times when our resolve to obey Christ leads us into conflict with the world because we will not submit to an ungodly commands. We can't sin against Christ while we obey some earthly authority. We just cannot do that. Because Jesus is Lord. He is Lord. He's Lord of the conscience. And there comes those cases where, where no, we cannot you know, burn the incense. Just burn the incense to Caesar and we won't have to kill you. Just do that. Or just sign a paper that you, that you burn the incense to the emperor and then he knows you're not trying to lead an insurrection. Okay, just do that. No, we cannot do that. Can't do that. And so there are times that our resolve to obey Christ brings us into certain types of conflict or mistreatment. Peter uses five different terms here in this passage. Verse 13, harm. We receive harm. Verse 14a, suffering. We may suffer. Verse 14b, threats. We receive threats. Verse 15, in the asking, 
Always be ready to give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope. That asking has been domesticated. The context there likely is people are upset why you are living the way you are living. And their asking is more like an accusation. Why do you not bow down when at Nebuchadnezzar's idol, okay, and, and worship Nebuchadnezzar's idol when you hear the sound of the trumpet and the bagpipe and all this? Why do you not bow down? The asking there in verse 15 is in the context of hostility. And then the fifth word is there in verse, verse 16. They what? Defame us as evildoers. Defame you as evildoers. You don't worship our gods. And what we prize most highly, you seem to despise. <laughs> that gets people upset. Harm, suffering, threats, accusations, defamation. It's not a walk in the park. It's not a walk in the park, brothers and sisters. No, it's not. Peter is encouraging us to not be afraid of such hostilities. Do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Rather, we should be confident in defending our hope while following Christ. Peter also wants to ensure that we do not suffer at the hands and mouths of our enemies because of our disobedience to Christ. Suffering for righteousness' sake and not because of our own doing of evil. Verse 17. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. And, and that's our goal. We want to suffer because of doing good, not because of doing evil. And so all of this, of course, reminds us of our Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't it? He exemplified everything we are called to do here in this paragraph. Well, look at verse 13 in some more detail. We are, we are challenged with a question in verse 13. You know, this is a thought exercise. Uh, Daryl Charles, quote, Peter opens with a rhetorical question intended to cause reflection. I like that. He gives us a question intending to say, stop and think about this. And here's the question. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? There's the question. Now, of course, the expected answer is, what's the answer? No one. That's the expected answer. Think about that. Who is he to harm you if you become followers or zealous, depending on the translation you're reading, if you become diligent followers or if you become zealous for what is good? And the answer is 
no one, no one can harm me. The safest course is to pursue what is good. Always. Always. The safest course is to always pursue what is good. We're back to Daniel's Nebuchadnezzar <laughs> fiery furnace. We don't know, O oh king, whether our God will deliver us or not when you toss us into the furnace. We don't know. But know this, we will not serve your gods. And ultimately, we will receive no ultimate harm. Okay? That is what this means. <laughs> so, the safest course is to pursue what is good. And from verse 14, we know this does not mean we will be freed from all suffering but we will be freed from all harm. See? Now, see, that's something you've got to think about. The passage doesn't say we will be freed from all suffering. The passage says we will be freed from all harm. <laughs> it doesn't say we'll be freed from all suffering, but we will be freed from all harm. Suffering for righteousness' sake is not ultimately harmful. And that, you have to sit down and you have to think that through. Because in the moment the temptation comes, you need to be ready. <laughs> okay, It will come. Those cases are going to come. One way or another. And you want to be ready ahead of time. And you're ready by thinking through this type of a question and situation. Setting suffering for righteousness' sake aside for a minute, when a culture has a good measure of natural conscience left and hasn't entirely defaced the image of God in its populace, being followers of what God defines as good does save one from all kinds of harm, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, that's a general principle. If you follow what is good, generally, because we're made in the image of God, and people have natural conscience, and even though they're not converted, they know the difference between good and evil somewhat, generally, being followers of what is good is not harmful and delivers you from a lot of harm. Some of us have to learn that the hard way. <laughs> but you know, the person who pursues peace often does obtain it. Yes. The person who returns a blessing for a reviling often comes through the conflict unharmed in ways that the reviler is not. Proverbs 16.7 says, When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Okay? So there is that general principle. Who, who will cause you harm if you pursue zealously, pursue good? Generally, often, it does. You reap what you sow. And you sow good things when you reap good things. 
Well, though a high degree of safety from harm is to be had by pursuing righteous behavior, such a pursuit does not secure us from suffering for righteousness' sake. We still will suffer for righteousness' sake. Even when we have been harmless and patient toward others, we may still suffer, but for righteousness' sake. Now, Peter addresses that situation in verse 14. And he says, you know, this really should be the exception. (laughs) But sometimes it isn't. Verse 14, but, say, but, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, Normally, who can harm you if you pursue what is good? But, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Well, based on Peter's previous argument, from an eternal perspective, if you remember chapter 1, We are blessed because nothing can detract from our inheritance, which is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and reserved in heaven for you. That's Peter's perspective. You are blessed. He's already given us that perspective in chapter 1. That inheritance is imperishable. Can't perish. It is undefiled. Nothing can be smirked it. It is undefiled. It is unfading. It doesn't wear out. It doesn't lose its glory. That inheritance is unfading. And best of all, it is reserved in heaven for you. That's right. So if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Remember Jesus' words to his disciples? Do not fear. That's our context. Do not fear, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. I I love that. You 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 should memorize that do not fear, little flock, for it's the Father's good pleasure. He's not reluctant to give you the kingdom. It's the Father's, I love that too, right? Good pleasure. The Father delights in giving you the kingdom. Therefore, don't fear. He delights. Just as you fathers delight in giving your sons and daughters good things. Jesus says, don't fear. Your heavenly Father delights to give you the kingdom. Okay. In other places, he says, do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul or destroy the soul in hell. I'll tell you who to fear. Fear God, who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. And then he goes on and gives comfort. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? (laughs) And that your hairs on your head are numbered. (laughs) 
things to think about, aren't they? That's right. So even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Now, I want to delve a little deeper into this idea. We're suffering, what? For righteousness' sake. That's what... It's this matter of righteousness that's causing the problem, okay? The, the, the hostility of the world against Christians. The, the problem is this matter of righteousness. That's the problem. That's the cultural problem. I want to delve into this a little bit further. You see, such suffering increases when a culture or its governing authorities, or both, suppress the truth in what? Unrighteousness. So that the definitions of good and evil begin to be reversed. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness, and we replace it. And so, this type of suffering increases when a culture or governing authorities or both suppress the truth in unrighteousness such that the definitions of good and evil begin to be reversed. Evil is paraded as good and good is identified as evil. Now in such situations, Christians are going to suffer for righteousness' sake. There's no two ways about it. When that definition of good and evil gets flipped, we are going to suffer. That's the way it's always been. As we pursue being followers of what is good, defined by the Lord Jesus, Others will defame us as evildoers, as verse 16 states. You know, will the real evildoers please stand up? (laughs) You know, the old TV show. Some of you don't know that, but that's the question. That's where we're at as a culture. We can't determine any longer who the real evildoers and who the good doers are. We are busily flipping the definition. And that's going to lead only one place. Christians are going to suffer for righteousness' sake when that happens. When common grace and natural conscience are suppressed to that degree, that's going to happen. And that's exactly what this passage says. When they revile you for what? Your good behavior in Christ. Your good behavior in Christ is being called evil. That's flipping of the definition. Christians by abstaining from culturally acceptable practices because they are evil, indict the whole culture that approvingly practices them. Right? 
Those early Christians refusing to burn the incense to the emperor and call the emperor Lord as a highest authority, they are refusing to approve those dominant cultural practices in the Roman Empire at that time. In other words, the behavior of Christians indicts the culture that approvingly practices idolatry or certain sins. Peter describes that result. Those who feel accused and indicted by right-living Christians, quote, revile your good conduct in Christ. They actually revile Christ-like conduct. They revile it. They revile your good conduct in Christ. What? And what? Speaking evil of you. 1 Peter 4.4 4. Now be sure to notice the definition of good conduct. What is it? It is good conduct in the ASU ethics professors. Oh, you want to see a display of human folly? Look how people are still trying to salvage something like ethics. They're trying to salvage some way to say something is wrong and something is right. And they're trying to salvage that while rejecting all divine revelation. It's like a comedy show. It really is. Somebody, that's a place where I think satirism probably is, is worth it, is, would, would be acceptable. If someone would write a book, complete satire of trying to do ethics with no revelation from a higher authority. They revile your good conduct, what? In Christ. That's the definition of good conduct. John 3, 19-20 illustrates this perfectly. What is happening? And this is the condemnation, right? That light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than light. We all were there at one time. This is the condemnation that has come into the world that men love the darkness rather than light. What? Because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deed should be exposed. The light is nothing other than God's revelation of His Son in truth. And of course, that sweeps in the whole definition of good and evil and all the rest. And so that's why Christians suffer for righteousness' sake. Because they're surrounded by people who have reversed the definition of good and evil, and they hate the light, and they love the darkness. And we should expect that kind of hostility when our darkness has gotten that far. And, and we're certainly going in that direction. 
not only that direction, we've arrived in, in some places. So, you know, here are a few concrete examples of how Christians can become exposed to suffering for righteousness' sake. You know, when someone is converted, often they first receive rejection from unconverted peers. That's the first thing you're going to go through. If you're converted as, if you're living in the world, you're going to be rejected by some or all of your peers. When you are converted, there is no reason, however, to forsake all your previous friends, but you will refuse to participate in certain activities because you know that they are displeasing to the Lord. And when you refuse to participate in those activities, that may cause unjust suffering of some kind. Your best of friends will no longer be your best of friends. And you'll find out who your true friends really are. And you'll find out what bonded you to them. If your bond to them was you enjoyed practicing the same sins together, that bond is no longer there. And you're going to suffer probably in some ways for righteousness' sake. Either they're going to make fun of you, or they're just going to ditch you. <laughs> okay? You're going to suffer for righteousness' sake, one way or another. And you should be prepared for that. So that happens, of course. Maybe not with all of your friends. Some of your relationships may be deeper than that. And praise God, if you have some of those, you want to keep those. <laughs> Absolutely, you, you, you want to keep those. You know, so they can observe your changed life and find out why. You know, our culture may be pluralistic, in quotes, but in some ways our culture is not pluralistic at all. Our culture is addicted to human approval and affirmation. It's like a drug and our secular psychologists drug people growing up with this psychological drug that you need a higher and higher and higher self-esteem. And, and nobody loses anymore. You know, and nobody gets, you know, there aren't grades anymore. And all of this is seeped into our culture that all you need is more approval. Now, hey, your kids need approval, but you know what they need? They need disapproval too. And a human being needs two things. The things that are good need to be praised and approved. The things that are wrong need to be corrected. You need both. And we're two generations now into people telling people how to raise their kids and they're ruining them. Because they're not receiving both. This is good this is bad. They're addicted on approval. The self-esteem movement was launched back in the 50s and the 60s. And they said, we're going to empty the prisons. If this generation would only grow up with proper self-esteem, we will empty the prisons. And what they meant by proper self-esteem is no correction. 
Your kids are neutral. And all you need to do is set a good example and build them up and praise them. Build them up and praise them. And everybody wins. Everybody gets an A. Nobody fails. And what are, how, many, how many prisons have we emptied? None. We've done the opposite. We've filled them. Because we need parents and schools that receive the light and know we need to we, we need to help our children and preserve their natural conscience. This is good. This is evil. That's what you're doing. You're preserving their natural conscience by the law of God until God gives them a new conscience. So, where was that? Oh, yeah, how we, we suffer for righteousness' sake. Our, yeah, our culture is addicted on this idea of approval and affirmation. And if you withhold such approval, they are apt to say all kinds of nasty things about you. It used to be you'd get, you would get the nasty things if you said condemnation. Now, if you just keep your mouth shut and refuse to give approval, you get all the nasty things. You need to get on board and give that approval. Even if you just remain silent and you refuse to give the approval and you keep your mouth shut and don't even give a condemnation, you are still going to be judged as a hater. And all this is happening because God's revelation and definition of good and evil, right and wrong, are being reversed. They're being flipped. That's why this is all happening. Light has come into the world. That's God's definitions. Men love the darkness rather than the light. That's the reversal. So, yeah... Suffering for righteousness' sake, withhold approval, withhold affirmation, and you're going to suffer if you're in those situations where people are demanding it. Third, you know, here's another example. Refusal to lie will sooner or later bring you into conflict with someone or some institution. For you will be the cause of someone else's problem. See what happens? Refusal to lie. Someone else has a problem. They got a problem. And they're going to lie their way out of it. And then they run into you. And somehow you're a key player in this thing. And you say, well, I can't lie. I won't lie. I can't lie. Now what? You see, you become that guy's problem. Because you won't lie. He's trying to solve a problem. He needs you to lie to solve, help him solve his problem and you refuse to do it. Happens all the time. You're going to suffer for righteousness in those situations. You know, that psalmist might have exaggerated a little bit when he expressed, screamed out, all men are liars. <laughs> but not much. Not much. You're going to suffer for righteousness because you know you can't lie, right? And you won't lie. 
Suffering for righteousness has always become greater when evil gets institutionalized in government, in governments, or in organizations, and you find yourself in them. When evil gets institutionalized, Christians suffer for righteousness if they're in there. And that's what happens, of course. It's what's happening in our government. It's what's happening in many organizations in our country. Evil is getting institutionalized. Institutions are now the vehicle for changing the definitions. You work for any large corporation in this country, they are the instrument for changing the definitions, aren't they? Absolutely. No institutions are accepted from this danger, whether governments, businesses, or religious institutions. Medical and educational institutions are prime examples. If you are a doctor, and we have doctors in this congregation, and you are in a medical institution, you are going to get the pressure down on you. Some physicians are being forced to engage in evil. And they're going to suffer for resisting. Our educational institutions, many of them are like that. You're going to lose your job. You're going to lose your job because of this. Suffering for righteousness. Anyways, that's what's going on. And that's what's going on in our culture. And some of you have already experienced different amounts of it. And there's more to come unless God, in His marvelous grace, converts more people. That's what I think. I might be too negative. (laughs) But as a conscience of the nation, as the corporate Whatever, however word you use, is that conscience goes down. And oh, by the way, I'm not encouraging you. If you're in an educational institution, I'm not encouraging you to bail. If you're in a medical institution, no, don't, don't bail out. Uh Uh-uh. Stay in there until they kick you out, and then everybody will know. You have been fired because of Jesus Christ. And if they kick you out, just make sure, respectfully, the passage is going to tell us how to do it, with, with respect, just make sure that when you exit, people know what the issue is. The issue is, I believe The Lord Jesus is the Lord, and that means He makes the definitions. He defines what is right and wrong. That's why I have been fired. I have been fired for Christ's name's sake. And you can do all of that even more gently than I'm sounding right now. You just do all that very gently, but don't bail. No. Mm -mm. stay right there and be part 
of the nation's conscience, whatever's left of it. One of the greatest blessings I had working for Lockheed Martin, program manager came to me and he said, I use you as my ethics and conscience standard on this big project about what's ethical and what isn't. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Okay? So, see, you can do that. And he knew what my convictions were and where they came from. So, just be, be prepared. That's what Peter is telling us here. But if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. You are blessed. Okay, in all these situations and many more, remember Peter's words. But even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. And I think it is beyond doubt that Peter has in mind Jesus' teaching on the whole matter, doesn't he? Uh, what are these blessings? Jesus explains that uh, Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 10 through 11. Turn it just for a second. No doubt uh, Peter has the Lord's teaching in view. Matthew 5, verse 10. It's the last of the Beatitudes, isn't it? Matthew 5, verse 10. He has these things in mind. First, what are the blessings? Well, there's three big ones here. Great assurance is the first blessing. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. What? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. There, that's the best assurance of salvation you can get. Isn't that great? I mean, Jesus says, hey, man, yours is the kingdom of heaven. That fits. Little children, do not fear. It's the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. You might suffer on the way, but you're blessed. You have great assurance, verse 10 there. That's the first blessing. The second blessing, you have a great reward. The second blessing, rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. There's the second blessing. The third blessing, you're in great company. Verse 12b, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before them. Great assurance, great reward. Great company. Think about that. So far we've had two things to reflect on. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? Think about that. Is Christ indestructible? Then what about those who are in Christ? They are indestructible. That's an Isaiah passage. No weapon formed against you will prevail. Brothers and sisters, that's true. In Christ, no one can ultimately harm you. Christ and His people are indestructible. And the Old Testament prophets actually use that. No, No weapon formed against you will prevail. No sword raised up against you will succeed. Romans 8, the last part, the last part of Romans 8. 
God has made us indestructible because Jesus Christ is indestructible and He is Lord over all things. So, and who is He who will harm you if you pursue followers of what is good? Think about that. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Think about that. And thirdly, based on these two matters, we are exhorted to a certain state of mind. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Wow, that's hard. (laughs) But we're exhorted to a type of fearlessness that's utterly amazing when God gives it. And we see that reading the pages of early church history. We see that. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. John Brown introduces the subject here quite well. Quote, While they were not to provoke their persecutors, they were not to quail before them. They were not to seek to obtain their favor or escape their displeasure by denying the truth or neglecting their duty. Nice quote. The way verses 14 and 15 are divided introduces a little bit of a distraction from following Peter's reason. 14b must be read with 15a. I'm almost done here. And those must be read without a pause. It's like this. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. The fear of man is to be overcome by sanctifying the Lord God in our hearts. This we will consider, Lord willing, next week. How to overcome that. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You certainly suffered for righteousness' sake, Lord Jesus. Thank you for these promises. Thank you for those beatitudes. Thank you for being realistic, telling us what to expect. Lord, we thank you for your love toward us. And we know, Lord, we cannot love you without experiencing your love for us. And that we love you because you first loved us. Lord, Ever give us a fuller revelation of that by your Spirit as you've promised. And let that be the motive for our obedience. We desire to respect you, Lord. Be mindful of our weaknesses. Be mindful of our fears. And teach us to set apart you, O God, in our hearts. Lord, we do lament the condition of our country, our schools, our these institutions. But you make no mistakes. And we know, Father, we know, Lord Jesus, that the gates of hell cannot prevail against your church. Lord, we thank you that we are in your Son. Lord, and you've chosen us to be in him before the foundation of the world. Nothing 
Lord, you have said, can or will ever undo that. Thank you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.